turn with me to Judges 17. And while you're turning there, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about idols. First John 5.21 says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. That book is written really as kind of a, um, a guide to help you know whether you're saved or not. And at the end of it, his last statement is, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Um, idols are really anything that you put between, or really anything that you worship or put between you and God as something to worship. And Judges 17 is an interesting passage that talks about idol worship. And so I want to look at that one together. Um, we won't read the whole chapter, and so I'll kind of summarize some of it. But the story begins with a man named Micah. And he was confessing to his mother that he stole 1,100 pieces of silver from her. She had spoken a curse over the unknown person that stole her money. But that quickly changed to a blessing over her son for confessing the theft. Let's pick up the passage in verse 3. It says, He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. His mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord. For my son to make a graven image, a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. Um, so he stole from her, gave it back, and she said, Let's worship the Lord by making a graven image. She immediately put something between herself and her worship of her Savior, and that was the image. Um, reading on, this gets better. Micah goes on to make an ephod, a shrine, and household idols. And then he literally made his own son the priest over all of these idols. And this still wasn't good enough. He paid a Levite, who was supposed to dedicate his life to the worship of God, to become the priest over his household of graven images. Man, talk about a lesson in missing the point. Um, Exodus 24 is specific command against this. And he just looked at that command and, and worshipped graven images. Look at verse 6. The second half says, or actually all of that, verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. I think we all know that verse. We think of that verse when we think of the book of Judges. And yet this context specific, the thing that was right in his own eyes, was making a house full of graven images and putting priests over this house of graven images. Um, this is such extreme idol worship. Um, and obviously, it's way off the mark. It's easy for us to look at this passage and be like, oh my goodness. <laughs> These people, like he stole from his mom, gave it back, and then they worshipped him giving back what he stole. Like... Um, I know this is a passage that when I'm in my reading through the Bible plan, I probably just pass by and I'm like, man, that guy's off his rocker. Um, and yet I think I do the same thing so often. Um, I think I do it in ways that are way less overt. Um, and I know I did it this week. Um, and so let's think. What are things that we've worshipped this week other than God? 
maybe you interviewed for a job and that would be better, or you started a job that you thought would be better than what your life is right now. Um, maybe it's some of the things being opened up here in society so that we can just have the freedoms we had a year ago. Um, maybe it's the salvation of your kids. Uh, maybe it's a friend that you confronted in sin and you want to see them turn from it. Um, those aren't bad things. But if they get in the way of you worshiping your Savior, then they're idols. Um, wanting good things can be idol worship. Uh, and that's, I, I recognized in my own life this week that I wanted something really, really good, and that became all I could focus on instead of my Savior. Uh, and it, it, was, it was a hard week because I, I wasn't worshiping God. Um, God has a plan. Everything that happens is exactly according to what his plan is. Scott taught us years ago, there's no such thing as plan B in God's, in the way this works itself out. And yet I wanted a plan B and was worshiping plan B instead of my Savior. So why do we do this? Why do we let this happen? Why are we, as John Calvin would call, factories of idols? I think it's because we have a wrong or insufficient view of God and his saving work on the cross. Um, and so for me to shepherd my heart, one, I went here. Like I've, I've actually taught this lesson before. I think it was a communion message a few years ago. And as soon as I recognized I was worshiping idols, I'm like, I, I went back here. I went back to remind myself of how easy it is to fall to this. Um, and then I just went and studied what God did on the cross um, and how much he loves me, how he died for me, um, and, and worshiped him and spent the last couple of days just worshiping him and trusting that he knows what's best. Um, and so 1 John 5.21 says, Little children, guard yourself from idols. Guard yourself from things that might become might come in the way of you worshiping your Savior. And that, that's all I can kind of exhort you guys to do. Guard yourself from idols. It's so easy to let an idol step in the way. Uh, we're looking at discipline one, the heart, troubling and comforting truths for my heart. Um, we're going to be looking at three very, very troubling truths that, that relate to our heart. And uh, they're certainly true of the unbeliever, but because of indwelling sin, these truths are present in the believer in a different way. They harass the believer, and they, they pester the believer, they bother the believer. And I want to put them in front of you, all of them, at the first time, at the beginning, and then we'll go through them one by one. And then the focus of this lesson is going to be about God and his goodness and what he does to save, what he does to strengthen the believer. So we're going to be looking at three things that are very, very troubling for the believer. We're going to be looking at the fact that what keeps the sinner from God is hardness of their heart. We're going to be looking at whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart. And then we're going to be looking at something else, and that is that self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God or closer to God. So first, what keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 17 to 19. Paul spends three 
chapters explaining how it is that God saves, and then he spends three more chapters explaining how it is that we're to live. And so in this passage here, Paul is talking about the unbeliever, and he's giving an explanation as to why it is that they are the way they are. I'll read verse 17 to 19. Paul writes, This I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you no longer trust, uh, you no longer walk, just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. What I want to do is I want to start in the middle of this passage at the end of verse 18. Because of the hardness of their heart. This is the explanation for everything that comes before it. Paul is explaining why believers are ignorant of spiritual truth. The ignorance that's in them is not an accidental or an unintentional ignorance. This is an ignorance that's very intentional. It's purposeful and it's willful. Have you ever had a person say to you or have you ever said to yourself, I don't want to know about it. You know, I don't want to know about it. I don't want to hear about it. What that person doesn't want to know about is something that is easily knowable. The information is available and it's right there for them. All they have to do is look or listen. They don't allow themselves to know about it because they don't want to know about it, right? And the only reason unbelieving man wants to remain willfully ignorant of God and his will for him is right there at the end of verse 18. It's because of the hardness of their heart. So the hard heart is what makes the unbelieving man disinterested in knowing what God says and what God's will is for his life. So what we're going to do is we're going to start at the end of verse 18 and we're going to walk backwards and see what looks and takes place. He's saying the hardness of heart is why the person is ingrained. He is stuck in willful ignorance of God. But if you back up, you see that that willful ignorance of God is the cause for them being excluded from the life of God. And as they're excluded from the life of God, that's how a man's reasoning process becomes spiritually dark. Then you go into verse 17, still working backwards. This spiritual darkness is the reason why the unbeliever's mind has failed him, why he's in the futility of his own mind. So that's the case for the unbeliever. But the believer has a responsibility to not harden his heart as well. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to stay in Hebrews 3 for the next section as well. I want to see in verse 8 and verse 15 things where encouragements, exhortations are given to the believer against hardening their heart. Hebrews 3.8, do not harden your hearts as when they, Old Testament Israel, provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Today, if you hear his voice in verse 15, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Here's when we need to remember where we are in our, our mixed condition. All of us inherited a spiritual deadness from Adam. We were born spiritually dead. I know I was. Um, we're in a spiritually dead condition. In eternity, we'll be in a spiritually alive, sinless condition. But in our mixed condition, the believer still has the ability to harden our own hearts. And so the believer must fight hard against hardening their hearts and fight hard to soften their hearts. And in the same way that when we go to somebody with the gospel and we're encouraging a person to stop hardening their heart towards the truth of God's design for salvation and God's, God's opinion of man, in the same way that we do that to others, we need to appeal to ourselves to keep from hardening our own hearts. 
So the Christian absolutely can harden their own heart, and this is a troubling truth. So what keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. Secondly, wherever it's possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart. We're going to stay right here in Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. The author writes, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you, these are the brethren that he's writing to, Brethren, let there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So prior to these verses, the author starts this chapter by explaining Israel's problems with hard hearts and unbelief. And and you see that specifically in verses 8 through 11. But the church was going through the same thing, and he tells them, take care, there there not be in any one of you guys, believers, an unbelieving heart. And the sobering reality for us is this, that because of sin's lingering effects, if you don't do anything to shepherd your heart with the truth of the gospel and the power of God in you, um, your heart will not go in its belief and its trust towards God. It won't grow in its trust in God. Rather, your heart certainly will slowly but surely weaken in your trust in the Lord. The less time we actually spend in the word, reading about God's design and God's work in us, uh, the less ready we are to trust him when circumstances come into our lives that are challenging. Life was really difficult for the early church in Jerusalem. They, They were kind of in a no man's land. They were Jews who were rejected by their own people because they had chosen Christ and And the perception from most of the believers there, or most of the Jews there, was that they had rejected the Old Testament. And when they hadn't, they were believing the Christ that was proclaimed in the Old Testament. But they were also rejected by by the, the occupying Romans around them. And so they were in a hard place. Their life was really, really hard. And uh, there was a a tendency to not focus on the gospel. And when you don't focus on the gospel, um, you lose the ability to trust the Lord in the things that the Lord has brought to you, things that are really, really hard. Jesus gives us another example of this on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. This is after the the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is speaking to two disciples. They're walking to a place called Emmaus. And he says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Uh, These men that he's talking to are believers and they were not quick to trust in what they knew to be true, but they were slow to believe the scriptures that actually revealed Christ. Everything that they had just seen and known about at the the crucifixion, they saw that Jesus was a substitute and that he was offered up, and they saw that blood was shed. They were not seeing it for what it truly was. These were men who were, were not to take what they saw at the cross and understand it as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that they knew to be true about the Messiah. They knew that the scriptures spoke about the Messiah. They didn't have a knowledge problem at all. They really did understand what was said about the Messiah, but they were just slow to believe that Jesus was the actual fulfillment of those scriptures and of those prophecies. So slowness of heart to believe is a condition the believer will face, and the reason why we face it is because of indwelling sin. Sin will slowly drag your heart away from trusting the Lord, and that is another troubling truth for my heart. And lastly, we're going to look at the fact that self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. I want to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 7 and 8. And the context here is that Jesus is being tested by 
uh, the Pharisees. He's being tested by religious leaders. And what he's doing is the, the religious leaders are asking Jesus why it is that his disciples have broken the tradition of the elders. He's not getting after them, asking them why their disciples are not following Old Testament scripture. There was another layer that was applied on top of scripture, tradition, by the religious leaders. Nothing that God gave to man. But this is what man imposed upon himself. And they were asking Jesus why it was that his disciples weren't following those traditions. And Jesus chastises them for following the traditions of man instead of appealing to and prioritizing and prizing uh, the word that God had given to them. And so in verse 7, Jesus says to them, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their heart is far from me. The unbeliever decides he needs to be religious. He sees that he might have a spiritual problem. So he decides that God will notice him and see his good works, his obedience of the rules or the law or his good deeds. And he believes that God will look upon this man and be proved and be compelled to set aside his own perfect law in favor of their flawed law. The man who decides that he wants God to be um, looking at things by his standard wants to appear religious. But what is actually happening is that God has an assessment of that man. And God's assessment of that man is, even though you appear to be religious, your heart is far from me. Even though you appear to be the one who is pursuing me, you're doing it for a reason that's not motivated from a heart of love for me. So self-made religion never moves a heart nearer to the Lord. It never does. So we can summarize these three troubling truths. Uh, the first is that hardness of heart keeps the sinner from God. And that's pretty sobering. The second is that the heart falls into unbelief naturally. And the third is that God is, is never impressed by our attempts to please him with our own deeds. It only draws us away from him. It doesn't draw us closer to, to him. This is the kind of heart that is not open to God. This is the kind of heart that, that um, is not drawn to God, is not open to God, no matter what kind of practice this person implements in their life. And so you ask yourself, well, what kind of hope is there for the person who, who has a hard heart, who falls into unbelief naturally, and who seeks to please God by their own works and their own deeds? And the answer is, God himself is the only hope for that person. It's a God who's not motivated to act based on what he sees in the sinner, but it's a God who's motivated to act based on his own desire to save that sinner. And so that's what we're going to look at here in the next, uh, the next while. We're going to be looking at these things. Um, what we want to do is we want to take a look at what is going to happen to these things at conversion. What happens to the hardness of heart? What happens to the slowness to believe? And what happens to the person who draws himself away from the Lord by trying to appease the Lord by his own good deeds? What happens at conversion is the, the power of these things to enslave the Christian is broken. But the power to persistently pester or harass the believer is not broken. The presence of those things will still be there. So these things have a lingering and harassing prevalence, presence in the life of a Christian. But in conversion, this is really important, the believer actually becomes equipped for something. They become equipped to fight these things, and they become equipped to fight these things with the gospel truths that we're going to look at.
So we're still capable of, of having hearts that are far from God while our lips make us sound like we're near God. But when we remember these truths, these are things that, that help us fight for, for what God has done in our life. So we're going to look at five truths. And what I want us to do is I want us to notice God's interaction with our hearts from the first of these to the last of these things. I want us to notice also the power of the gospel in these five truths. In every one of these things, the power and all the activity that's taking place is on God's part. It's not on ours. So God overcomes the hardness of heart. God overcomes the slowness of heart to believe. And God overcomes within us a desire that we can please God by anything that we do. These things are all really offensive to God, especially the last one. Because God gave Israel his law, and his purpose for giving them the law was to show God's holiness and show Israel that they could not please him by keeping a law. Israel would keep a small portion of the law, and then they would keep their obedience to that small portion of the law, and they would hold it up as evidence to God that he should accept them because of who they are. That's really offensive when God says, I gave you the law to show you that the very thing that you're doing is something that never is attractive to me in the first place and something that you can't accomplish. So this is where we need to look. We need to look to the death at the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead and those things being the basis for our ability to walk in newness of life. Because in those things, God actually creates a new man. And this man now has the ability to see the things that he could never see before. So the first thing we're going to look at is how God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. Um, I remember my life before I, I knew Christ, and, and looking back, I, I see a kind of darkness that was all-encompassing in my life. I, I was completely ignorant of who God was, even though I, I lived for 15 years in a very Christian context. My parents were missionaries overseas, and I was always in church, and Christianity was all around me. I couldn't miss it. But as I look back at my life, I, I just see that my heart was truly dark. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us what God does to overcome that darkness. I want to read verses 5 and 6 for us. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is really powerful. Really, really powerful. So if God shines into our hearts to give spiritual enlightenment, that means that our heart was originally lost in darkness. We needed that light. And what kind of power can actually do that? Nothing else has done that to that point in our life of conversion. Nothing else had made us aware of our condition before God. What can do that? And this, the only thing that can do that is a power that is unique to God, our Creator. How bad and how deeply ingrained was our spiritual darkness? It was so bad that only God could overcome it. And notice that God doesn't wait for us. He doesn't wait for us to fix our darkened mind. He doesn't wait for us to soften our hardened hearts and to solve our spiritual problem. He actually enlightens us with the truth that we need to believe in order to be saved. So God actually shines the light and provides the light of the truth to us. What we actually need to know in order to be saved, God is the one who makes us understand it. First uh, John chapter 5, we celebrate the fact that, that Christ has given us understanding of who he is. 
That understanding comes from God actually shining light into our lives. So that's the first comforting truth. God enlightens dark hearts. The second truth is that God cleanses hearts through faith. He cleanses hearts through faith. Where we're going to go for this is Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 6 through 11. And the setting here is, is the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, what had happened in the early church was that Jews were coming to Christ and Gentiles were coming to Christ as well. And uh, there was a question that needed to be addressed. The question was, these Gentile men who are coming to Christ, do they need to be circumcised in order to be considered part of the family of God? And this was a serious issue because circumcision was something that was absolutely and uniquely Jewish. And at the same time, the Jewish people were the people of God. And so what about these Gentiles who come to Christ, these men, should they be circumcised? And so Peter stands and he speaks really, really well here. I'm going to read in verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And we want to focus on what's said in verses 9 and 11. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up to, and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. Did the same thing for them that he did for us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we are to believe, I'm sorry, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Peter was right on with this. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile prior to conversion, your heart is dirty and needs to be cleansed. It's dirty. And God is the one who does it. God is the one who does it. Remember back in Matthew chapter 15, um, man's self-made religion does not draw him nearer to God. Jesus made that very, very clear. God doesn't require us to clean ourselves. He's the one who cleans the one he's saving. God looks upon a sinner who has a dirty heart, has an unclean heart, and God is the one who cleans them. But how does God do that? If we look at verse 9, he uses faith. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. I know we all know this, but it's good to look at what the definition of faith really is. Faith is the act of looking away from yourself, looking away from yourself in order to entirely entrust yourself to God. You look away from yourself to entrust yourself to God. To trust that God can perform a redeeming work in you that you cannot perform in yourself. That's what faith is. It's a belief that God can do something for you that you can't do for yourself. But as long as you remain in a heart condition where you're willing to look only to yourself, you will never trust God. And therefore, a person who, who is in that condition will remain in that, that same dirty condition. But we're not naturally born with the ability or the desire to look away from ourselves. I wasn't. I lived for 15 years thinking that it was up to me to make myself presentable and acceptable in God's sight. And this is where grace comes in, if you look at verse 11. <clears throat> we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
grace, and we all know this as well, is the unmerited, is the undeserved, the unearned favor of God. God looks at the sinner who's at odds with him, who's running from him, who is at enmity with him, and he gives them what they don't deserve. He gives them the ability to look away from themselves and to look at Christ and embrace Christ as the one who could do for themselves what they can't do. To be given by God the ability to do what you could never do on your own part to bring about salvation, that is a comforting truth from God. That's our second comforting truth. The third truth is that God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. So not only does God cleanse, but he also frees the heart from sin. Think back to your life before you knew Christ. Did you get that door? Um, before you knew Christ, sin was master over you. Whatever you wanted to do, whatever color, whatever flavor of activity it was, you did. You ran after it with, with everything. I did. I ran after it. My favorite sin of choice was profanity. I loved to use profanity because of what it accomplished for me. It got me friends, and I esteemed that as much as anything else. But Romans 6 is where, where Paul talks about the Christian's new relationship with sin. There is still sin present, but your, your relationship to that sin is different than it was prior. And he explains that early on in verse 4 in the chapter, and that's one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. We're going to look at verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, um, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. When God saves the sinner, the first thing that he does is he works on the sinner's heart. He works on the inner man the totality of who you are. And he goes right to your heart. And that's where bondage to sin existed, the hardness and the slowness to believe and the quickness to establish our own justification before God based on what we've done. But by the grace of God, our heart was able to hear another voice over our own voice, our own voice that was, was drawing us away from God. And by God's grace, he gave us the ability to hear his voice and the right understanding of what sin really is and right understanding of the solution to our sin. We used to be only able to hear sin's voice commanding us to do things, and we would respond to that and we would run after it. The first few verses of Ephesians 2 tell us that, that we lived in the lusts of our flesh and we indulged ourselves in whatever was around us at any time. But by God's grace, he gave us a new allegiance and he enlightened us and he cleansed us by faith. And we found obedience from the heart to be possible in a way that was never possible prior to knowing the Lord. Look what he says in the near the beginning of verse 17. You were slaves of sin. You were you were you were held captive by Satan to do his will. But then you became obedient from the heart. Now that's a new obedience. That's a, a change, a fundamental constitutional change in the person. But if you look at the end of verse 17, you see who's doing the work here. And this is what's really important for us to notice. Verse 17 at the end says, You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Is that you doing the work there? No, that's not us doing the work. The language Paul uses here is very passive language. 
the, the committing is being done for the believer. It's being done to the believer. That's being done by someone else, and that someone else is God. God is committing you to that form of teaching, and the gospel saves. So your position under the gospel is one in which is you're committed. It's been accomplished by God, and that is our third comforting truth, that God frees the sinner uh, from sin to become obedient. No longer is sin master over us. Now that we have freedom from sin's rule over us, the fourth principle is really, really helpful, and it talks about Christ's residence in the heart of the believer. Christ makes himself at home in hearts by faith. So we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 3. This is a wonderful passage. This is closing Paul's section, the first half of Ephesians, where he's describing how God saves. And we're going to be looking at uh, verses 16 and 17, especially verse 17. But the whole passage is really helpful, so I'll read all of it, starting in 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, in your heart, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So Paul here is writing to Christians. He's writing to a group of people that he spent three years with, teaching them the gospel. These were people who had a, a pretty solid base of theological understanding. And he wants them to understand God's purpose of using the church to make his wisdom and salvation known in the heavenly realm. He wants them to know this. These are lofty thoughts. He wants them to understand this. The church here on earth makes known God's wisdom and salvation to all of the creatures that are in heaven. There is rejoicing in heaven at the salvation of, of saints here, of souls here on this earth. But the principal means by which the church does that is through Christ dwelling within them. And we see that in verse 17. Starting in verse 16, just so we have some run up. He would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So to be strengthened by the spirit that's working in our hearts so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's what we're going to focus on here for a second, is Christ dwelling in the hearts. This is not the, in, the, the initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit at conversion. This is, this is more here something that, that is, is a, richer, a richer, deeper, more practical indwelling of Christ. It's Christ's presence. It's an intensified word for dwelling. It, it's not a temporary dwelling, like pitching a tent. Rather, it's a permanent dwelling, where the resident is pleased with the accommodations. And here, Christ is finding a heart that is oriented towards him. He is pleased to dwell in that place. You know, There's two kinds of hotels. There's one you can walk into and you can say, hmm, this isn't what I was expecting. This is a little less than I was expecting. You can walk into another kind of hotel room that this is a nice place to be. This is very accommodating. This is, this is really, really good. Write down Colossians 1.19. Actually, let's turn there. Colossians 1.19. This is really good to help us understand and underscore what kind of dwelling we're talking about here. Colossians 1.19. Josh talked through this just a few months ago. 
This is really helpful. We want to be looking at the way the word dwell is being used here. In him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. God himself is perfectly at home to reside in the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus being the second person of the triune Godhead, God himself is perfectly at home within the body of Christ. The Christian is to strive for a kind of heart in which Christ is at home in the same way. So we ask ourselves, how at home is God's goodness in Jesus? It is a perfect fit. The Father is perfectly pleased to dwell in Christ. That's the way Christ's practical indwelling is to be like within us. We are to be the kind of residence that Christ would love to be residing in. So we need to understand that, that Christ actually does dwell in us positionally. That happens at conversion. We are in Christ. That's really good. But what kind of residence does he find us to be for him? Um, is it a, a place where we are aligned well with him? We are aligned with the purposes and, and the objectives that Christ has for us as instruments in his hands. And what helps us do that? It's a little daunting for us to think about that, but we find our help in this very same passage. We find our help in verse 16. He would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit. His Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the strength to do this. And that's our fourth comforting truth. And then lastly, we want to look at what God does to actually establish us without blame and holiness. Christ establishes us without blame and holiness. And we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul had a very different experience with the church in Thessalonica than he did with the church in Ephesus. He hung out with the church in Ephesus for a long, long time, had a long relationship with them. He developed rich, deep, meaningful relationships but it wasn't the case in, in, with the church in Thessalonica. He shows up, he shares the gospel. By God's grace, a church is formed, and Paul has to leave fairly quickly to avoid persecution that is coming. And so this church uh, did not have a lot of understanding about how it is that they're established in Christ. There were a lot of things that, that he didn't know, and they didn't know, and Paul wrote to them to give them a more complete understanding of what those things were. And right here, what he wanted them to understand is that how it is that they're going to be established without blame and holiness. So he writes, in, starting in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Look in verse 13 at what the Lord Jesus does for the Christian. He establishes their hearts without blame. So to establish means that Jesus makes the Christian's heart strong and firmly settled in the gospel. They're convinced of the truth of the gospel. They're convinced of God's power to save we're convinced of God's desire to save and his ability to save. But he establishes them first in, in a negative term without blame. Jesus removes all of our sin. It was really important to these people, to Paul, that these people understood 
that they were going to be established without sin that is charged against them. But then he speaks of something positive. He says, we're going to be established not only without blame, but we're going to be established in holiness. That's a positive term where Jesus is setting the Christian apart. And it's really important for us to look at at the context of time and where this, this takes place. Where it takes place is before the Father. The believer is standing before the Father and they have no blame. And they are holy before the Father. And this is really good for us to remember when this takes place. This was encouraging to the people in Thessalonica because they didn't have a a deep and rich understanding. This takes place at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This is pointing to the second coming of Christ. This passage is looking forward to the Christian's glorification when they'll be in an eternal state. And the Christian's glorification is tied to Christ's presence, which will usher the saint into the presence of God the Father. So from conversion all the way to glorification, you see the the work of the Father here, you see the work of the Son, you see the work of the Spirit. They're all active within us. They're powerfully at work in us at a heart level. And God commits himself to us at a heart level from start to finish. Notice that in all five of these truths, these things are what God does for the believer. They're not things that the believer does for themselves. God enlightens the heart. God cleanses the heart. God frees the heart. God makes himself at home. Christ makes himself at home in the heart. And God establishes and firms and settles the heart in the knowledge of the gospel. The gospel is all about God and what he does to create a new man. And so it's good for us to ask ourselves what our hearts were like without Christ. This is really good for the believer to, on a consistent, regular basis in our day, in our week, in our month, to remind ourselves of the kind of people that we used to be because that gives us a right perspective of what God has done in our lives. Our hearts were hard. Our hearts were unbelieving. Our hearts were eager to try to be religious without being near to God. And this is what God had to do to change our hearts and secure us all the way to the end. So I hope what's on display here is God's goodness and his kindness to the believer. So what should our response be to that? We can't be neglectful of what God is so focused on from conversion to glorification. He is focused on our hearts from the day that he saves us until the day that he brings us to be with Christ. He gives intense attention to this. And so we must too. Um, My response to God's heart within me is to shepherd my heart to the word of God in order to worship him and to love him, to fear him, to obey him, to know him. I have to do everything I can to inform myself of what is true about God every day. So uh, I hope that's encouraging to you guys um, to consider the, the things that are true about us in our unbelief and then to see what God has done to overcome that and conquer that and give us new life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these men. I thank you that what we see here is one after another after another testimony of your work, your power, your mercy, your love, your initiative to draw us to yourself. Lord, that you are a relational God and you enter into the life of the sinner and you rescue them and you change them, you establish them, you preserve them, you give us your son to take up residence in our heart. 
And Lord, you have promises for us that that in eternity you will see us as without blame. You will see us as holy and set apart. Lord God, I pray that all of these things would be things that encourage us to run hard after you today. And we would love you. Lord, when we have opportunities to turn from sin, would you grant us your grace in the gospel to do that in a way that's pleasing and honoring to you? Lord, would you help us with our words to speak truth of the gospel to ourselves first and then to those around us? whether it's our wives or our children or our friends or the people that we work with. Lord, would you allow us to do this so that your name may be great, so that the gospel may grow and everyone that you have called to yourself would be saved. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.